We began the book of Leviticus last week, and we did the first three chapters. And tonight we are going to continue and actually conclude the first section of Leviticus, which is the first seven verses. And one of my authors I was reading called this the Manual of Sacrifices. And that's a pretty good name for these first seven chapters. Basically, he's just laying out what all these sacrifices are. Now remember, the major context, the book of Leviticus is the center of the Pentateuch. Remember we talked about the chiastic structure, how they begin, they're away from the land, then they're going to Mount Sinai, in the middle they're at Mount Sinai, then numbers are coming away from Mount Sinai, and then they're back in the promised land. And in the middle of all that is Mount Sinai. And in the middle of that is the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. It's answering the question of if God is going to dwell among his people, how are his people going to last there? Because they, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. We know we cannot see God's face and live. Exodus 40, 35, one of the last verses of Exodus said, Moses could not enter the tabernacle because of the glory of the Lord. So we're answering this question. How are we going to be in God's presence? And so that is why we begin, last week we looked at the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. And there are two more major offerings that we're going to look at tonight, the sin and the guilt offering. And these two are different because they are specifically given to provide pardon for sin and uncleanness. The first three were general and could be used in a number of contexts. One of them was even voluntary and optional. Uh, You could do it whenever you wanted. One of them was more regular, and the grain offering kind of gets paired with a lot of other ones. So there's two more that are specifically given for pardon for sin. And for that reason, of course, they are strong figures that anticipate the pardon that Jesus Christ would provide at the cross. That he is in all of these things, as we've seen, but especially in these two. Because as it says in Hebrews 9.22, and we're going to be referring to Hebrews a lot in the book of Leviticus. Because Hebrews refers to Leviticus a lot, and Numbers as well. But the writer says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Haven't you noticed that? Sprinkle the blood on everything. But without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's the lesson we learn from Leviticus. So knowing that, we gain insight through what God told them here of our own approach to God and how we might abide in God's presence as Christians. That's what the word abide means, to stay. So Jesus says, stay with me, abide with me. So how are we to abide in the presence of the Lord? Even as forgiven New Testament believers, there are lessons for us to learn here in these four chapters we're going to do tonight. We're going to do chapter 4 through 7 of the book of Leviticus. A lot of reading, again, I've tried to break it up, uh, especially towards the end in some smaller chunks, but it's scripture. How much scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable? All of it. All right, so let's read some of it. Leviticus chapter 4, and we'll do the whole chapter to begin. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering." He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. 
And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering, but the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord, and the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting." And all its fat he shall take from it and burn on the altar. Thus shall he do with the bull. As he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. And he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And all its fat he shall burn on the altar, like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven." If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish, lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. 
And all its fat he shall remove, as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. Okay, this is the sin offering. This is the fourth major offering that we have. We've had the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering. Now we have the sin offering. And the word for sin there is chata, and this word means to miss. You've probably heard that. To sin means to miss the mark. In Judges chapter 20, it says that there were men who could sling a stone from a certain number of paces and not chata, not miss, the same word for sin. That's a good word for sin, don't you think? That you miss the target, you don't measure up. And this is that kind of offering. This is the chatata karban, the sin offering. And you noticed, hopefully, as we went through that, there were four gradations of people in this chapter, and then two different kinds of offerings to be made within those four. So there were the first two, and then there were the second two, and there were two different offerings for each of those groups. So the first one, you had the priests and the congregation. And if there was a sin committed by the priest or the congregation, they had to offer a bull before the Lord, a male bull. First, he said, the anointed priest. Uh, this could be specifically referring to the high priest, but it, it doesn't use the word it usually uses for high priest, so it could be any one of them. The priest was the representative of the people before God and also the representative of God before the people. So this is why he's first, and his sin requires a greater sacrifice because he's held to a higher standard. Same thing is true today. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, for we shall receive a what? Do you know? A stricter judgment. I'm going to have a harder time on judgment day than you. Unless you become a teacher too, and you want to join me in that. The anointed ones of the Lord are held to a higher standard. That's the first one. Then the second one was the whole congregation. And I read a few that said this is referring to the assembly, like the, the parliament, so to speak. I don't think that's what it's meaning. But it just means what it says, the whole congregation. When something is done that pollutes the nation of Israel, whether it's one individual, whether it's a group of people, whether it's all of them, and they all sin, they all had to come and offer, again, a bull before the Lord, and the elders of the people would be the stand-in. Do you remember in Joshua 7 when Achan stole some things from Jericho? They were supposed to completely lay waste to the city of Jericho, not take any plunder, any spoil for themselves. It was the first fruits to the Lord. And he kept some things and buried it under his tent. And they were unable to have victory in battle until it was exposed. So that's an example. Well, it was the one man, but that one sin polluted the whole congregation. We're going to see several of these as we go through. And then they would have to offer a sin offering. And what they would do is they were to dress the bull. They'd feel dress it, essentially. They would offer the fat portions on the bronze altar. We've already seen this with the peace offering. They would take the fat, basically the best bits would go on the altar. They would take the blood, so they would catch some of the blood as it was killed. The one offering it had to kill the animal, remember that. They had to go into the holy place. He had to go to the incense altar. Remember, there was a, a golden incense altar about as high as my podium here and probably about the same dimensions too, that stood right before the veil. 
where they would offer incense. So he would take the blood of that bull, he would take some of the blood and put it on the horns, so there'd be four protruding corners from the altar, put the blood on the horns, then seven times he would have to sprinkle the blood right in front of the veil. So that only had to happen for the whole congregation or for the priest. And then the rest of the blood would be drained out. And what is different from a peace offering here is that none of it was to be eaten. That was what happened in a peace offering, is that they would sacrifice the best parts, and then they would take the rest of the meat, and they would eat it. And it would be a fellowship meal between them and the Lord. But this is a sin offering. It's not just for fellowship or worship. This is to be atonement. So the rest of it was to be burned outside the camp. Nothing could remain of it. That was the first two and the first offering that covered the first two. Second, you have the leaders of the people, and then it says the common people. You might say the citizens, the average Joe. And they were able to offer a sacrifice from the flock. So a leader could offer a male goat. So a a male goat is less valuable than a bull, more valuable than a female goat, if you, if you know that, that it's more important to have a male in a flock or a herd than to have a female. So just financially, it, it was more expensive of an offering because he's a leader. Again, held to a higher standard, but not as high as the priest. And the common people could offer a female goat or a female lamb, which is even less. We've seen several times God making accommodation for poverty among his offerings. And the ritual was the same as the bull, except this time there's no sprinkling before the veil. There was no going into the holy place, but the blood would be spread on the horns of the bronze altar. And the bronze altar was out in the courtyard. That's the big seven by seven one where all the sacrifices went and it had horns as well. And the blood would be sprinkled there and then the rest would be drained out. And there was no burning outside the camp with this one. But we do know they still were not allowed to eat any of that. So it doesn't specify exactly how it was disposed of, but there did not have to be that ceremonial removal like there was for the the priest or for the whole congregation. And these sacrifices did not have specific times when they needed to be offered in the calendar year. They were often included with a burnt offering, but they were to be done as needed. That when you sinned, when you found yourself, we're going to look in a minute about the reasons why, but in need of this, then you would go. And chapter 5 is going to tell us you would do this along with a burnt offering, actually. And the New Testament, as you maybe are ahead of me here, portrays Jesus as our sin offering. And it makes a big deal out of the fact that he was taken outside the camp to be killed. Jesus was crucified on Mount Calvary, Golgotha, which is outside the city of Jerusalem. He bore our reproach like this sacrificial bull would. The writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So do you see why you need to know Leviticus? Right there, he's specifically referring to what we just read in chapter 4. He's talking about this ritual, that when they bring the animal in, if you're going to sprinkle the blood in the holy place, it had to be burned outside the camp. Then he says in verse 12, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. As we know, the the blood of bulls and goats is unable to take away the sin of anybody. It had to be the sin of the perfect substitute, the God-man, Christ Jesus. And he took our reproach outside the city. The ash heap, he was 
mocked and, and crucified and held up to public shame. And we see not only in Christ, but in this picture here, what your sin deserves. It deserves to be crucified outside the city. It deserves to be burned up and thrown onto the ash heap. In fact, there could be some symbolism there to when Jesus talks about those that are taken away to Gehenna and burned, which was the trash heap outside the city. That's what you deserve. And I've found that in many cases, when you're talking with people and persuading them about their need for a Savior, that's the sticking point. They don't realize that their sin is that bad. Okay, serial killers, yeah. Terrorists, yeah. Those Wall Street jerks, yeah. But I mean, I'm just an average, I'm a normal person. I've not done anything so bad that I deserve hell. You have a very high opinion of yourself, don't you? And maybe you may not be trying to be arrogant, but you don't understand. God doesn't grade you on a curve. The standard is the perfection of God himself. We've all missed the mark. And the penalty for that is to be taken outside the camp and burned. Hell is a fiery place. But here's the good news. Jesus took that for you. And if you come and repent and bow the knee and give up that old life and die with him symbolically and in your heart and by faith, then God will extend his grace and forgiveness to you. So we must not ever think too highly of ourselves, even as forgiven Christians, because we know where we belong. (laughs) Everything we have is because of Christ. So we have all kinds of pride and joy in Jesus, but none in ourselves. That's why Paul said, if anyone's going to boast, let him boast in Christ. And we also, this is a whole other lesson for another day, must never be afraid to bear the reproach of the cross. As, as times move on and people aren't so patient with Christians anymore. Now, you've got to be prepared to put up with that. Because Jesus took that reproach for you outside the city. So in the next verses, it's going to tell you what kind of circumstances would merit a sin offering. So we just read the ritual. Now let's read about why would you need to do this. Chapter 5, verse 1. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal, or a carcass of unclean livestock, or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him, and he has become unclean, and he realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanness, of whatever sort the uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt. Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him. When he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest who shall offer first the one for the sin offering 
He shall wring its head from its neck, but shall not sever it completely. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. Then he shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the rule, which was in chapter 1, if you want to go back and read that again. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons... Then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no, no oil on it and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful of it as its memorial portion and burn this on the altar on the Lord's food offerings. It is a sin offering. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven, and the remainder shall be for the priest as in the grain offering, which was in chapter 2, if you want to go back and read about that. So here we are given four different things for which a person would offer a sin offering, and I would imagine these are representative things. This is not an exhaustive list. This is the kind of thing that would merit a sin offering. We're going to see a line uh, with the guilt offering where it's going to say, or any such things like these. I think many of the laws in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers are representative. They're saying this is the sort of penalty that ought to be given for this kind of crime. And then the judge would have some discretion uh, in, in that. And I think same thing for these religious ceremonies. So remember, we saw back in chapter 4, verse 2, that the sin offering is for anyone who sins, it said, unintentionally. So this is somebody that did not plot what they were going to do. Maybe it was the heat of the moment. Maybe they didn't realize what they were doing. He uh, just mentioned somebody who becomes unclean, maybe with an animal carcass and doesn't realize it. You might think, how do you get you know, in contact with an animal carcass and don't know it? Well, think of Samson and his parents. Do you remember that story? Samson killed a lion and there was a beehive in it, and he took some of the honey and brought it home to his parents. Well, if they were to find out they'd eaten honey from a dead lion, they would need to go and offer a sin offering. So you can see that sin here is not just talking about moral evil. It's talking also about ritual and ceremonial uncleanness. The, the opposite of sinning unintentionally in the law is the phrase to sin with a high hand. You can, you can see that, right? It's like, I did it. and I don't care what anybody says. That kind of sin has no forgiveness in the law. And he gives four examples, and this is, by the way, another chiastic structure. He starts first about uh, not witnessing in court when he should, and he ends with making a rash oath. Both of those are sins of honesty and integrity. And in the middle, you have two sins about uncleanness. So again, you can see this chiastic structure everywhere, and you can also get a little crazy with it if uh, you're not too careful. But I thought I'd point that out since we talked about that last week. So first of all, failing to testify to provide justice you know, if it, you see it in the newspaper that there was an incident that happened on such, such day, anybody that knows anything about it, please call the sheriff department. And you don't, you would need to offer a sin offering because justice was not worked out in any direction because of you. And then also, number four, the rash oath. Just, you know, I swear before the Lord that I shall do. I think of Jephthah who said, I will, I will sacrifice the first thing that runs out of the city when I get home. And it was his daughter. And that's, that story is supposed to be showing you how far Israel had fallen from their, their standard. But that's an example of a rash oath. And also the second and third examples were about ritual uncleanness. We're going to talk a lot about that in the future. 
Uh, we'll save that for another time. Just remember that this was the offering that you would need to offer if you became unclean in some way. So you can see this sin offering was for uncleanness, and, and it seems to be sins of omission. Things that you were supposed to do but didn't. Things that you are unable to fulfill for one reason or another. That's what a sin offering was for. Again, you can also see the gradation here of the possible offerings based on your means. He said you offer a goat or a lamb. If you can't do that, you offer a turtle dove or a pigeon. The old King James, I believe, says a turtle or a pigeon. It's a turtle dove because you're not going to rip the wings off of a turtle. I hope everyone can get that. Uh, and if you couldn't even afford that, then some flour. So the idea is any, everybody needs to make this offering, and God is not going to make it onerous upon anybody. You're not going to be unable to be clean because you can't afford it. That's what the Lord is, is doing here. The other key thing to note is in verse 5, when your guilt has been realized, and I, that's an interesting phrase on its own, because sometimes you don't realize what you've done. Sometimes you forget that you said you were going to do something, and then it comes out you didn't. And sometimes you don't feel bad about it, and then all of a sudden your conscience will smite you in an instant. You ever had that happen? And that's the same idea here. When you realize your guilt, you are made aware that you're guilty. And he says they are to come and confess the sin. And I'm inclined to think this would happen when they laid their hands on the head of the animal. And we talked last time, this, the word actually means to lean. So you're not just you know, laying hands on the animal. You're holding it down before you cut its throat. And while you're doing that, you confess what you've done, and then you would kill the animal. You can see the very visceral picture there that sin merits death. God is very much trying to teach this to all of us. And so the sin offering teaches us, because it was occasional, meaning because it had to happen as needed, we cannot rely on the everyday works of religion to be sufficient to cleanse us. But sins must be individually and specifically forgiven. I think this is an important thing to note. That the Lord expected these people to interrupt their daily routine to make it right with God. And now we are not offering sacrifices any longer. But if you have committed sin in your life, you ought to stop right where you are and make it right with God immediately. Not just, well, I'm going to church on Sunday and that'll cut it. Well, they offered burnt offerings every morning and evening, but God had a special offering in place for sins that had been committed. Even to receive forgiveness from Christ, even to obtain what Jesus has done on the cross, you have to confess and repent. Romans 10, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he's raised him from the dead. You must repent. You must obtain the sacrifice through confession. And even after you're saved, there ought to be a regular pattern in the Christian life of confessing your sins and petitioning God for forgiveness. Now, this is not getting saved again. This is, as Jesus said to Peter, he who is clean needs only to wash his feet. You ought to be coming to the Lord and asking for forgiveness when you sin. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the New Testament, it's all about the heart. God is not concerned any longer with the ritual. He says, we need to get to the heart now of what this is all about. You can't hide from God. He saw you do it anyway. And we shouldn't hide from each other either. James 5.16, in that famous verse about healing, not like, you know, I'm, my soul is healed and I feel better. No, bodily healing. He says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. 
which tells us that there are sometimes God want, works God wants to do in our bodies that are prevented by our sin. And the way to remove that blockage is to confess our sins to each other and ask for prayer and forgiveness. That doesn't sound very much like our tradition, but there it is in your scripture. Psalm 32 is a, is a great passage about repentance and confession. It says, when I hid my sin, it's like my bones were being eaten out every day. But in Psalm 32, 5, he says, and then I confessed my sin, and you forgave my sin, and how blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. Confession. We don't have formal confession here. I don't have any power to absolve you of a sin any more than Jesus does, obviously. He's paid for every sin by his blood, but this is now maintenance of the relationship between you and God. There's freedom in confession, and there's bondage without it. So keep a short account with God. The minute you are realizing your guilt, when you come to your senses, you drop to your knees right then and there, and you ask God for forgiveness, and you ask for grace to keep moving forward. It's a good habit to develop. So that is the fourth offering, the sin offering. We're going to move on now to the, the fifth, which is the guilt offering. I'm going to read from chapter 5, verse 14, down to chapter 6, verse 7. A little bit of a shorter section here. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally, there it is again, in any of the holy things of the Lord. So we're talking about ceremonial cleanness here. He shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest." And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent, for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven." It is a guilt offering. He has incurred guilt before the Lord. That's the ritual. And now chapter 6 is going to tell us the kinds of things that would merit this sacrifice. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby. That's that general statement I'm talking about that is saying not just these things, but this kind of thing. Verse 4, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. So no waiting. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do, and thereby become guilty. So the fifth and final major offering is the guilt offering, which deals with compensation and debt. 
So this is the kind of sin where there are damages involved, as opposed to before where it was mostly ritual uncleanness and sins of omission. This is now sins of commission, unintentionally done, or in the heat of the moment, same idea. Primarily, this is to cover the violation of any of the holy things of the Lord. And we will outline that later, what those things are. The Lord will explain, this is not to be done, and this is not to be done, and if you do, you must offer a guilt offering. And we just read what that is. He was to bring a ram, and he says, or its equivalent. So what he's probably saying there is, either the ram or the monetary value of that ram. This is unique among the sacrifices because the primary purpose of it is to make compensation. Plus 20% more above what he had done. So the ram plus the the cost of whatever you you stole or you broke or whatever it is, plus 20%. And the sacrifice itself, as we're going to see in chapter 7, was identical to the sin offering. So everything we just read about burning the fat, and sprinkling the blood on the bronze altar. Exact same offering, uh, but this time it was a ram. It was a male sheep from the flock. This was not just to cover anything holy in the, in the tabernacle. This was any instance of theft or fraud or unjust gain. It would require the sacrifice or its monetary value, full compensation, plus 20% above what you had wrongfully taken. In Exodus 22... We read that if you stole something or if you robbed somebody or anything like that, you had to pay double if you were caught and found guilty in court. Here, if you come and confess it willingly and make the sacrifice, you only had to pay a 20% fine. So this is also designed to incentivize confession. Very interesting, again, that the Lord does that, huh? He says, if you come and, and, and confess it, it will go better for you. And this offering here, the guilt offering, is the exact image that Isaiah and the New Testament writers would use when they describe what Jesus did on the cross. And I know we've said this with all five of them. That's because all of them are used to describe and celebrate what Jesus did later on in the Bible. Let's read this familiar verse here and see if you can catch where they're talking about the guilt offering. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Did you catch it in verse 10? He says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Literally there, it says, when his soul becomes a guilt offering. And it's poetic, so it can read both ways. But he's saying, this man, my servant who is to come, will become the guilt offering for the world. And it says in verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. Did you see over and over again, he's saying, if any man does such and such, he shall bear his iniquity. He's using Levitical language in Isaiah 53 to describe what Jesus will do on the cross. He shall bear our iniquities. Isn't that remarkable? I love that. We've all sinned before God. And the debt that we owed, as I said, was death forever in hell. The wages of sin is death. What your lies and your temper and your lust and your laziness and your cowardice, what that deserves is death. Death forever in hell. 
The ash heap of heaven, you might say. But forgiveness has been provided for in Christ Jesus. He says, you don't have to bear your own iniquity. I'll bear your iniquity. I will be the guilt offering for you. And so it is incumbent upon us to take advantage of that, to be saved, to put your faith in Christ and receive it today. If you have not received the guilt offering of Christ, then you're headed for hell. You don't have an offering just because you know about it. You have to put your faith and believe You have to confess and repent and obey. If you don't, then you will stand before God and he will say, you knew, why didn't you come to me? There's good news, but if you reject the good news, there's only bad left for you. Not only that, but just as the offerer here needed to pay back what he had stolen, just as he needed to pay a fine, so we also, when we sin, ought to pay back first to God and second to our neighbors for what we have done. Romans 13, 8 says the only debt that we are to carry is to love each other. And we don't say, ah, I really, I I ought to get that back to him. I've taken advantage of her. I've taken advantage of them. The Bible says the only thing you owe anybody is love. And so it's up to you as a Christian, as a disciple of Christ, to make situations right when you break them. This is so important. And not only that, when you have been sinned against, it is up to you and go make it right. Jesus said, if you are bringing your offering to the Lord and you remember that your neighbor has something against you, leave your offering there at the altar and go make it right and then come back. Because he's probably referring to this offering here. He's saying the whole idea is to make compensation. He says, but it's way more important for you to make that relationship right than for you to come and offer a ram on the the altar. This is what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi and all the other prophets would say as well. He was echoing what they said. As a Christian, it is up to you to go out and make it right. Either to forgive the debt that is owed to you or to pay what you owe, whether that is an apology whether that is financial compensation or any such thing. And also to the Lord, we sang it tonight, Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. There's another song that says, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. There's nothing left for you if you are a believer, there's no more of you. It all needs to be given to Christ. We hold nothing back for ourselves. There's no line that we won't cross. There's no place we won't go. There's no conversation we won't have. There's no vice or pleasure that we won't give up for the sake of Jesus. Pay back what you have robbed from the Lord in your sin. Well, starting in chapter 6, verse 8, and then going to the end of chapter 7, Uh, the audience is going to more or less shift. It's going to not be so much aimed at the people coming to worship as it is at the priest who is going to offer this. And it's primarily going to be addressing what is to be done with the meat once it's been sacrificed. And this is when we start to get our first taste, no pun intended, of the food laws related to the children of Israel. And those will be outlined later in chapter 11. When we get to that, we'll take an extended amount of time to talk about it. But we're just going to go through each one of these offerings, these five offerings, and uh, then we will see what will need to be done. We've already talked about what the sacrifice was. Now we're going to see the, the 
special instructions given to the priests. So this is kind of like the teacher's guide. You ever get a hold of one of those when you were in school? You had a textbook, but you accidentally got the teacher's guide with all the answers in it. This is kind of like that. Verse 8, we'll do small sections here. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command Aaron and his sons, the priests, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment, and put on his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar, and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments, and put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place." The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. So we begin with the burnt offering. You remember this one? This is when the whole animal was consumed on the altar. And this section is focused mostly on keeping the fire going. The bronze altar was always to have fire burning on it. Every day, he says, the priest who would tend to the fire was to put on, remember the priestly garments, the white linen garment, come and get all the ashes and put them next to the altar. Then he would go change, put on his regular clothes, take the ashes outside the camp. This is their learning to distinguish between holy and common. When you're touching my altar, you will be properly garmented, <laughs> properly clothed. And then when you take it outside the camp, you shall not wear my holy garments only here. And we're not told why it was to continually burn, perhaps as a picture of God's presence. John Calvin, I thought, had an interesting insight when he said that, as we're going to see, the Lord was the first one to light the fire on the burnt offer, uh, on the altar. So you were to keep the fire of God going, so to speak. But of course, the tabernacle would move, so that's probably more of an application uh, than an accurate interpretation. But for us as well, Christ died once for all. We don't need regular sacrifices, but regular worship should be offered daily. You're always coming to the Lord. Don't quench the fire of the Holy Spirit, Paul would write to the Thessalonians. Verse 14, and this is the law of the grain offering. So we're working through these five. This is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar, and one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat it, as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy." The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering that Aaron and his sons shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed. A tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a grain offering and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons, who was anointed to succeed him, shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. 
You remember the grain offering. This was unleavened bread. You could bring the flour. You could bring unleavened bread cooked a couple different ways. You would pour oil on it. You would put frankincense on it. Then the frankincense and part of it would be burned, and that would be the memorial portion, and the rest would be given to the priest. So here we see the rules about eating the grain offering. It was acceptable to, for them to eat. Any male priest could do so, but only in the tabernacle. So at, at the risk of sounding carnal here, this was lunch. This was how they ate while they were working in the tabernacle. Also, he adds to that, starting at verse 19, that upon his ordination, the priest, every priest, was to offer a grain offering, half in the morning, half in the evening, and none of that was to be eaten because it's their own grain offering. And we're going to see later that this was the rule for every day. So not just a burnt offering in the morning and evening, but every priest who was working that day was to offer a morning and evening grain offering as well. So every priest was participating in this. But they were not to eat their own grain offering because this was their portion to the Lord. For example, I'll just say this briefly. This is why I continue to tithe. Even though I am, of course, supported by the church, I'm not going to act, well, it's all going to the same place anyway. Well, no, because <laughs> it's important that I offer to the Lord as well from what I have. Verse 24. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of, number three, the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. So now we're going out of order from what we saw in the first couple chapters. This is the sin offering. This is the one that it was either a bull or a male... Uh, a male goat or a female goat, depending on your means. We just talked about it. And this one, the priest who offered it was the one that got to eat it. The only exception was if it was for the congregation or the priest. Because remember, they would take the blood and they would sprinkle it seven times in front of the veil. And if its blood was in the holy place, none of it was to be eaten. Because it was holy. It had been brought into the Lord's presence. And uh, in Haggai chapter 2, verse 12, he asks them a question. He says, if holy meat is wrapped in a garment and it touches something, does it become holy? And he might go, holy meat? What is he talking about? This is what he's talking about. He's talking about the meat that the priests would eat. And as the Lord says, it was not to touch anything else. He says, if the blood from that sacrifice gets on your garment, that garment had to be washed. If that, garment, or, uh, if that meat was boiled in an earthenware pot... And we'll see this later on in the Bible, that apparently it would be boiled before it was sacrificed. Uh, that's how they prepared it. It says, you've got to break the pot, because that blood doesn't rinse out of earthenware, because it's porous, and the blood will stay in it. And if you bring something bronze, he says, then you better clean that thing. Scour it and rinse it with water. So maybe that's what the freshman priest's job was. His job was to, to clean the bronze, the bronze uh, vessels. 
You're already beginning to see here, and we'll discuss this in detail later, the, you might say, contagious nature of holiness and uncleanness in the book of Leviticus. If something holy touched something else, that thing became holy, and it would either need to be redeemed or destroyed. And same thing, if something unclean touched something that was clean, the clean thing would become unclean. So we're going to get into that later. I just want to call it out for you now so that you notice it. All we'll say right now by way of application is don't allow the lines to be blurred between what is holy and what is not in your life. Holy things will sanctify you. Unclean things will defile you. So stay holy. Chapter 7 now, verse 1 through 10. This is the law of, number 4, the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar, and all its fat shall be offered, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy." The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. That's why the guilt offering before did not have a detailed description because it was the same ritual. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. And every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. This is the one, remember, this is compensation of a religious or a financial nature. It was to be a male ram that was offered. And the ritual is outlined, same thing as the sin offering. And both of them are very similar to the peace offering as well. He adds a few extra things. Uh, Because, as we've read, the guilt offering and the sin were to be offered with the burnt offering. And he gives us an extra note here. The burnt offering, which is the whole animal, the one difference that was not burned besides the refuse was the hide of that bull. That would be given to the priest. You might might think, why in the world would he want the skin of a bull or a lamb? Well, because you could tan it and you could make leather. It was a commodity that could be bought and sold. It was another way of providing for the priest. They could make garments out of it. Who knows? And the priest was entitled to that if he was the one that was offering it. Same thing for the grain offering, that there would be baked bread that would be given to the officiating priest. But if it was flour that was brought, so if they bring in loaves, those would be given to the priest who offered it. If they brought in flour, the flour would be evenly distributed. Verse 11 now. And this is the law of the sacrifice of Peace offerings, number five, that one may offer to the Lord. This is the one where you would share in the meal yourself. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day what remains of it shall be eaten. 
But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh, but the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or an unclean detestable creature, and then eats some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. This is the peace offering. This is the voluntary one. And we see that he gives us three reasons why you would bring a peace offering. Number one was a thanksgiving offering. So this is if the Lord had done something for you, right? a baby had been born, something like that, and you bring a thanksgiving offering to the Lord. And there's one law for that. Then there was the vow, or you maybe in your older translations, a votive offering. So this is a vow that you've made. The Nazarites would have to offer one of these when their term of vow expires expired. And then there's a free will offering. You might say a just because offering. No reason. I just felt like coming and worshiping today. And there's a law. The law for the votive and the free will were the same. But it was, of course, the same type. If it was just for Thanksgiving, then he would bring these various kinds of leavened and unleavened bread. One of each kind of these loaves would be sacrificed and the rest would be given to the priest. Note that the priest were given leavened bread when these Thanksgiving offerings were given. So they did not have to eat unleavened bread all the time. And for Thanksgiving offering, he had to eat the sacrifice that day. And that makes sense. I'm thanking God for what he's done. I'm not wasting any time. I'm just going to celebrate today. And the rest of it will be burned if you couldn't finish. Then for a votive offering, a vow, or a free will offering, you could wait until the third day and then you had to burn it. And if you ate it afterwards, then you needed to go and offer a guilt offering before the Lord. So you can see right there, he shall bear his iniquity, the guilt. It takes us right back to what we read, guilt offering. And then he clarifies, the holy sacrificial food could not be in contact with uncleanness. It needed to be burned. So if a crow landed on it when it's out cooling or if you're having a picnic or something, you had to throw it out, had to be burned. So anybody who was unclean, a leper, for example, could not eat the peace offering. They'd be cut off. And I wish I could talk more about this, but we're running out of time. The peace offering essentially was an expression of your personal relationship with God. This was my thanksgiving. This was my vow to the Lord. This is my just because. This is my story that I'm commemorating with the Lord. If you read 1 Samuel chapter 1, take the time to go there. 1 Samuel 1, 24 through 28. This is an example, very clear in the Bible, of Hannah bringing a peace offering to the Lord. She comes, she testifies of what God has done, she offers the sacrifice, she eats the meal. This is when Samuel was brought to Eli. So go read that on your own time. It's a very clear example of why you would do something like this. I also like that he said the Thanksgiving offering needed to be eaten the same day. Don't, don't wait to give honor to the Lord. Testify of what God has done. Moving along, verse 22 through 27, these are the first of the food laws or the first specifically food laws. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, you shall eat of no fat of ox or sheep or goat, the fat of an animal that dies of itself 
And the fat of one that is torn by beasts may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats the fat of an animal, of which a food offering may be made to the Lord, shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall eat no blood, whatever, whether of fowl or of animal, in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. So kind of carrying on the same idea of what could and could not be eaten. You've got some prohibitions here. The Israelites were never to eat blood. We've talked about this before. And this is not meaning rare steak. This is meaning you had to drain the blood of the animal. Genesis 9 verse 4 with Noah goes all the way back to that. But God adds to that the fat of a sacrificial animal. And I had learned this today. This was universal. No cows, no sheep, no goats. You were not to eat the best portions of those animals ever. Now, wild game like a deer or a chicken or something like that, that would be perfectly fine. But anything that could potentially be a sacrifice to the Lord, you are not permitted to eat the fat or the best parts of it. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the food laws in chapter 11. So let's, let's move on to uh, verse 28 here. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands shall bring the Lord's food offerings. So no servants. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed or heaved, you might have in your Bible, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and of his sons, from the Lord's food offerings, from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. The Lord commanded this to be given them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. So very quickly at the end here, God specifies which portions of the sacrificial animals went to the priests. And we have two things here. First, we have the breast meat. So if this was an ox or a bull, this would have been the brisket, basically. And he says it's a wave offering, and the words in, imply a sideways motion. So perhaps there was some kind of ritual where they would chant or they would pray as they waved it, and then it would be given to the priest. And the right thigh, the ESV translates it contribution, because that's what it is, but it also can be a heave offering. And this implies an up and downward motion. So maybe there were two uh, ways of going about this. We're actually not given a ton of detail on what the actual ceremony looked like. So, but then the, the right haunch would be given to that priest. So whenever a peace offering was brought, the Lord would receive the fat, the person would eat some, and then the priest would get the breast and the right thigh. This is the Lord providing for his, his priests. 1 Timothy chapter 5 tells us, Paul is telling Timothy, that those that labor in preaching and teaching deserve to be paid. The laborer is worthy of his wages. He's going back to the same principle God was laying down. Now, later on in 1 Samuel 2, the priests would abuse this, and they would take way more meat than they were allowed to, and God would judge them for it. And then in Nehemiah 13, the priests had to abandon the temple and go work farms because the people were not bringing sacrifices, and so the priests had no food. So there's just a lesson. We are a very prosperous nation, 
And let it never be said that God's work could not be done because the people were stingy about it. Verse 37, this is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, which was also a grain offering, and of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. So that brings us to the end of the first section of Leviticus, the manual of sacrifices, as I said. Reminds us that we're still at Mount Sinai, that this is still coming out of the holy place. The Shekinah glory of the Lord is speaking to Moses. And I know this can seem tedious to you, but you've got to remember that this was the worship life of the Israelite. They would have lived this experience every time they went to worship God. When it says in the Psalms, let us go up to the house of the Lord, this is what they're doing. They're offering peace offerings. When it says, let the lifting of our hands be as the evening sacrifice, he's talking about the burnt offerings. And there would have been grain offerings there too. They would have known that. They probably would have reviewed this before they came to the temple or the tabernacle. I hope that we can see also that God is not dishonored by order and structure in worship. 1 Corinthians 4 says all things should be done decently and in order. It's a lot of order in this, isn't there? You're going to do this, and you're going to do that, and you're going to offer this, and you're going to cut it like that, and you're going to eat this here and only there, and he can't eat it. We give the Holy Spirit room to invade our presence anytime we like, but don't ever use flexibility as a cloak for laziness. Come prepared. And more than anything else, it reminds us that sin must be atoned for if we desire to dwell in the presence of the Lord. And that is what was provided in Christ Jesus on the cross. If you desire to approach God with anything else than confession, repentance, and faith in the shed blood of his son, then you're going to remain on the outside. But for those who believe, there is pardon for sin, and there is welcome into the presence of the Lord forever.